We'll be reading from two texts this evening. The first is background, but in the future of the second. So we will turn first to Acts chapter 2, and then to Psalm 16. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 33. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption." You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And please turn with me to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your scripture, we are mindful that this is not that which was produced by the will of man, that this was not produced by someone speaking a good idea, but that you carried these men along by the Holy Spirit 
so that this is the very word of God, the very words of life. We ask, O Lord, that you would write your word on our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear, and that you would equip us by your spirit to live lives of gratitude to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Psalm 16 is a text where the ending is already spoiled for us. So there will be no dramatic tension here. You know where this is going. David knew where it was going. But how often does our society today think about death as meaningless and then import that meaning back into life? Perhaps no more poetic expression of this has been given than not recently by Shakespeare in the tragedy of Macbeth, where after scheming and deceiving his way through life along with his wife, things start to go awry. And quite literally, his enemies close in around him. And he receives news that his wife, the queen, has died. And he gives voice to the way the world sees life and death. And he says, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Well, for Macbeth and for much of the world, the idea is simple. Enjoy life or don't. You're going to die and it doesn't matter. That's the message. But is that what David says at all? David here in Psalm 16 has a radically different understanding of life and a radically different understanding of death. And in his view, which is God's view, he looks forward to the resurrection. And he anchors his hope in the resurrection so that death is not the end of the book, it's the end of a chapter. And so as we come to this text, we see that he anchors his hope of the resurrection. He begins by dropping an anchor on sure ground in the first two verses. And he begins this psalm with a simple request. Preserve me, O God. Preserve me. You don't have to look far in the Psalter to see examples of this request being made. This is common to each of us that we need God to preserve us. But often in the Psalter, we have something specific in mind. Often there is something in particular. Preserve me from my enemies closing around me. God, I feel distant from you. Preserve me. But here, David is all-encompassing. And he simply says, preserve me. How often is this our prayer? For all of life, in trial and in triumph, in sin and in righteousness, in despair and in hope, 
And yes, in life and in death, our prayer is that God would preserve us. And why can we pray this? Why can David pray this? Preserve me, O God. He answers that immediately. For in you I take refuge. You see, the Psalter is a book given to us that has a cheat code at the front to understand how to read it. The first two Psalms. And the very beginning of Psalm 1 begins with a simple word, blessed be the man, and describes a life of righteousness. And this is true blessing held out. But David does not say, preserve me, O Lord, for I have been righteous. And this pushes us to look a little bit farther past the beginning of Psalm 1, past this righteous man. What is our hope when we haven't met God's law? And this pushes us to the very last words of Psalm 2. Again, blessed. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. And that's why David can plead this way with the Lord. Because God has pronounced blessing on those who take refuge in him. And David says, righteous didn't describe me, but refuge does. This is me. This is the kind of refuge that you'd flee to, even in the midst of the worst storms. Out here in California, we don't have tornadoes very often, but you can imagine it without too much trouble. And when the tornadoes come and the sirens go off, where do you go? Well, if you don't have anywhere to go, you go wherever it seems kind of safe. But the really smart ones who have planned for this have a tornado shelter. And they close the heavy doors, and they're fine. They're not scared, because they have a refuge. Or perhaps you could think of it this way. When you wake up in the middle of the night, and you're scared, and mommy and daddy's room is right down the hall, where do you go? You go right to your refuge, because you're secure there. You're safe. That's the kind of access that we have to God. But David continues, and he says to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. He turns and makes a personal appeal. He doesn't say merely that you are God, a confession of fact. This is a confession of faith. You are my God. The promises that I believe to be true, I believe to be true for me that you apply this to me, O Lord. And so you are my greatest good. I have no good apart from you. And this, again, is very intimate language. This is the language where if you're married, you can only say this to your spouse. You should only say this to your spouse. This is language of being your one and only. What is David saying? that he has no good apart from God, but that God is everything to him. This is clinging to the promise that God has promised that he would be his God and we would be his people. This is the promise that David is laying hold of. And so he anchors his, his hope to God's promises that God will be faithful. 
no matter what trials he sends, he will be faithful. This is the anchor that David drops for his hope. Well, this moves on fairly quickly for David into the second main section of the text in verses 3 through 8, a little bit larger section, where he both refuses the path of wickedness and pursues the path of righteousness. And we see here in verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. And David lays out a simple truth. A face value understanding of this is enough to encourage us that we can delight in the assembly of the saints. But this is also poetry. And David allows this tension to build a little bit by moving us into verse 4. And he says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. And their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. What on earth is David talking about? In 21st century America, we don't often think in terms of blood offerings being poured out. But 3,000 years ago, this was pretty standard practice for sinful, idolatrous worship. And what David is describing here is something that often seeped into even the life of Israelites, where they believed that they could worship God in the evening or in the morning, and then they could go and worship somebody else in the evening as if that would be acceptable. And what David is actually saying here in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply, is not merely a statement of fact. He's expressing a wish. He's saying, may a curse land on those who follow other gods. This is the language, the exact word, the sorrows, is what we get in the covenant curse of Genesis 3 after the fall. May your sorrows be multiplied in childbearing is the same word. David is bringing in the language of the covenant, the legal language here, and saying, Lord, do not let your curse depart from those who depart from you. This is strong language. But if you understand the setting, it makes sense. Because pouring out drink, uh, blood offerings was something done at night. It was part of a Canaanite worship practice that spread throughout the land and spread even into Israel, where people would go out in the night and dig a trench, and they would slaughter an animal, and they would pour its blood into the trench, and by that means attempt to pacify the demons that they saw as being in charge of the underworld, and maybe by that way they could get access to their ancestors, and their ancestors could tell them good things to do. That's what David is describing which sounds ridiculous to us, hopefully, but that is the context. That's how abhorrent this worship was. As if anything other than God could be worshipped alongside of God. But what does David say? I will not do this. My hope is in you, O Lord. And because my hope is in you, I will not participate in this, and I will not even take their names on my lips. This will be far from me. Instead, David tells us what he will do in verse 5, and we see the righteous path by strong contrast with this wicked, horrible idolatry. 
David says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. And you'll have to bear with me here because I like barbecue. But chosen portion is the kind of language you use to describe brisket. This is the best portion. This is well done. This is not well done, but excellent. (laughs) This is everything that he could have wanted. And he says that the Lord is his cup, this representation of his sustenance. And in that, God is not merely his sustenance. He is wonderful. It's as if you get told you're going to have to live on the same meal for the rest of your life. And you say, oh, bummer, what is it? They say, brisket. You say, okay, I can get on board with this. This is going to be wonderful. And what's more... The Lord is not merely the wonderful everythingness for David, but he also holds the lot. Again, not a practice commended to us to cast lots, but what is it? Well, you might have remember from the story of Jonah. Jonah flees from the Lord and he goes out to sea thinking that perhaps across the water he can escape from God. And God sends a storm and the sailors are not real thrilled about this. So they say, what's going on? And they decide that the way to handle this is to cast lots. And the lot comes and lands on Jonah. And so they chuck him overboard and he gets eaten by a fish. There's more to the story. But the point being that the lot was a means to understand what God's will was. People thought that way. That's the practice that was sometimes done. And what David is saying is there is no sense in which what happens to me is outside of your will. Everything happens according to your will, O Lord. And so he says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, and I have a beautiful inheritance. These are boundary lines. And that right away raises a question in our minds. Why is David speaking about boundary lines? Why is this man who has spent his life fighting Philistines and everybody else around him happy about his place on the surface of the earth? Because he understands, he sees with farther vision that his inheritance is beautiful. What he will come to possess in the Lord is so wonderful that it even echoes back to his present life where he can be pleased. And if you have neighbors, you know that this is not always the attitude that people have. If you have neighbors that live near you, maybe even above you or below you, you know that they're noisy and they're sinful, and they're humans. And yet David says, I can be satisfied in that. And in fact, I am satisfied with that because I have a beautiful inheritance. He's looking forward. And it's not hard to imagine for a man who has spent his life from being a young man until old age, putting on armor and putting his hand to the hilt of his sword and going out into the scorching heat to face fierce combat, what that kind of inheritance might look like. And it looks like peace. And so David takes a name upon his lips now and he blesses the Lord who gives him counsel. The Lord who gives counsel, not false gods. He doesn't turn to his horoscope for counsel. He turns to the Lord. And how does the Lord reveal himself? But through his word. You see, the Lord trains his heart to instruction, even in the night. 
while those who are out chasing after false gods are pouring out their blood offerings in the earth, going nowhere, David, instructed by the word of the Lord, blesses the Lord. Secure that everything will go in accordance with God's plan. And so David says, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And verse eight here is the climactic point of the poetry here. Because David does something that he doesn't do anywhere else in this psalm. He makes every single word rhyme. And even a simpleton like me, when approaching poetry, appreciates rhyming. And every word, not in English, unfortunately, but every word rhymes all the way until the last word. And the last word, where this all lands, is I shall not be shaken. See, David says that everything that comes my way is secondary to God who is at my right hand. The reeling, the tottering, the swaying, the being staggered about on deck of a ship that's cast up and down on the waves of the sea, that will not describe me, David says, because I am firmly planted on the rock. I have a sure grip on that which cannot be shaken. That's what it means to see life in light of the resurrection. We have a hope that allows us to endure. And what is that hope? Well, in our third section of the text, we turn to verses 9 through 11, and we see what that hope is. David says that because the Lord is at his right hand, because the Lord is before him, because the Lord gives counsel, because the Lord has taught his heart to instruct him, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. Or perhaps you could look at the footnote there and see that it says, my glory rejoices. Everything about me, everything rejoices because I am sure that I am anchored in the Lord. Why? Because he has promised me that I am. This is not a basis, a boast based on the claim of David's righteousness. David isn't looking back to verse 4 and saying, see how good I am, Lord. And so I can be confident. No, he looks back to verse 1 and says, I take refuge in you, Lord, so I can be confident. And I can even have joy. And beyond that, my flesh also dwells secure. And you may have noticed that Peter, in his Pentecost sermon, put this in the future tense. My flesh will dwell secure. You see, when David comes onto the scene in Scripture, Many of us recall the first, our first Sunday school exposure to David as the young man going out and facing Goliath. And David, the young shepherd boy going out on the plains between the Israelite army and the Philistine army and this giant from Gath, Goliath, taunts him. And what does Goliath say to him? But I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. That's the taunt. Your flesh will be scattered. What does David say here? My flesh will dwell secure. That taunt will not land for me. I can go into the grave, even into the grave, in confidence. 
because my flesh will dwell secure. Why? Because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or see your, let your Holy One see corruption. And you see, David says that my soul will not be abandoned. My soul will not be discarded or forgotten among the dead. I abandon the names of the dead. And you will not abandon me. Nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. And here we have a different word. We saw saints earlier, but now it's Holy One. What is this? It's not the same word. It's, in fact, one who is faithful. One who is loyal. This is the personification of God's attributes of steadfast love. This one will not see corruption. And because of that, I dwell secure. It's no wonder that Peter can say that this is speaking about Christ, the one who was steadfast love in flesh. And so, how does David conclude? But you make known to me the path of life, or you could say the way of life, perhaps. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You see, this is like embarking on a journey at night. And you step outside, and the path is before you. How confident are you in where your feet will go? Well, for David, the Lord himself makes the path known to him. And David looks at this path, and it's not a path that is full of shadows containing who knows what. It's not full of things that he can trip over, but it's a path that's illuminated by God's divine presence. It's a path that is straight, and he sees, and he sees where it leads, and it leads to life. And not life that's the best we could imagine. This is life that's the best that God can imagine. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard probably much about the resurrection. I would hope you've heard much about the resurrection. And sometimes it can seem like this might be a little bit boring. I suspect that there are those among us who have thought that before. How good can the resurrection really be? Well, how good does David say it is? Fullness of joy. Is there any joy that is left half full? And pleasures forevermore. We might think about what it would be like to live in a perfect world. Maybe you wouldn't have to share toys with your brothers and sisters. Maybe you wouldn't have to be teased at school. Maybe you wouldn't have to have relationship problems or have to do homework or sit for final exams. Maybe you wouldn't have to get up early in the morning before your body wants to be awake to get in your car and go to work where you'll work all day and come home tired and say things you regret. Maybe it would look like not living in the grip of fear or having the iron bands of anxiety around your chest. Maybe you wouldn't have to worry about health or pain. Or maybe you would have positively wealth or honor, or glory, or riches. And we think there are people in this world that have attained that to some extent. In 1927, Charles Lindbergh came back from across the ocean. 
He had done it. He'd conquered the Atlantic, the first man to fly solo across the ocean, and ushered in a new realm of what was possible. And the world responded with adoration. And they sent him everything they could think of. He was flooded with marriage proposals. He was given cars and airplanes and, and knighthoods and swords and all kinds of cool things. He was even given a paperweight that included metal from Christopher Columbus's anchor. Just cool stuff. But what does that do? What does any of that do ultimately? What does honor and treasure actually do for you in this sense? Does it offer security for the future? Is that really the part that you gravitate to? That your future is, is solid because you have these things? Or perhaps it's something interesting to look at, something that you can put on your wall and impress people with, or, or perhaps it's something valuable to cherish. How much more than all of that is what's held out to us in Christ? What could be possibly more secure than knowing that you are sure in the grip of the one who will not let you go and who went even into death and out of it again to show you that? How much more interesting than to speak with the one who spoke the world into existence? How much more valuable than the life that he has and that he freely offers to his people? Well, for Peter, we see that this, this psalm of David is clearly about Christ. This is what David is looking forward to. Because God declared Jesus Christ to be the Son of God in power by raising him from the dead. When the world condemned him and said guilty, God raised him up and said, no, righteous. And he holds that out, that verdict out to you. David trusted that this promise would come. That the curse of Genesis 3, that he could call down upon those who turn away from the Lord, he turns and says, no, I will lay hold of this blessing, that there will be one who will come and conquer death. And it would be his greater son. You see, David went into the tomb. But he did so hoping in the resurrection. And the resurrection happened in Christ and proved the resurrection for David and proved the resurrection for us. And he holds this promise out to us too. And so we can take refuge in the Lord. We can, we can cry out, preserve me, O Lord, not because of my righteousness, but because of your righteousness, because I take refuge in you and you will be secure in Christ Jesus. And what attraction in the world could pull your gaze from that? What does the world offer that's worth cherishing more than that? What joy is more complete than that? And what hope is more sure than that? And how different is this from the unanimous voice of the world? From Macbeth, who says that it's all just meaningless and signifies nothing. No. Our resurrection is guaranteed by Christ. David will one day walk again from the tomb because his greater son paved the way by walking forth first. And we likewise will. Because we understand 
that when Daniel said that those who sleep in the dust shall rise again, some to everlasting shame and some to everlasting life, we understand that this is true. We understand that when Paul says that he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness and that he has given assurance to all by raising Christ Jesus from the dead, we know that this is true. And we know that we who are in Christ Jesus fear no condemnation because the verdict has already been pronounced because Christ himself is the resurrection and the life. And what does he say? Well, he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. John saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And our Lord says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come to you clothed not in our righteousness, which is as of filthy rags, but instead clothed in the perfect righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you have freely given to us. We ask that you would give us ever greater faith, that we would not merely assent to that the fact that these things are true, but that by your spirit, we would be able to say, Lord, that these things are true for us. Give us confidence, we ask, that we might live in light of the resurrection to your glory. In your son's name we pray, amen.